Picture yourself driving down the highway in the early hours of the morning. You are moving quickly and making good time. Although there are many other cars merging onto the highway, there are multiple lanes and plenty of space to keep the traffic flowing. Up ahead, a lane is closed for construction, forcing everyone to file into the remaining lanes. Thankfully, traffic is light, so everyone continues to move at a reasonable pace. Now imagine it is rush hour. As more and more cars join the highway, there's less space for each car to maneuver. Soon, there are cars filling every gap and the traffic slows to a crawl. With so many cars vying to get ahead, the pressure is on to find an alternate route. Cars begin to leave the highway in search of another way to get to their destination. Side streets that are normally empty are now filled with cars spilling off of the highway. In the setting of cirrhosis, the splanchnic circulation is the highway, and when it gets congested, fluid spills into areas normally found vacant. As it accumulates into the peritoneal cavity, the abdomen swells, and the once steady flow becomes decompensated. Today, our patient has ascites, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is on ascites and is entitled, Where Salt Goes, Water Follows. Now for a minute physiology. Ascites is a pathologic accumulation of fluid in the peritoneal cavity that results from osmotic pressure imbalances. This can occur due to liver cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, heart failure, or malignancy, among other causes. Cirrhosis is the cause of ascites in 80% of patients. The underlying pathophysiology that leads to ascites formation in cirrhosis is renal sodium retention. In the setting of cirrhosis, increased intrahepatic vascular resistance and blood flow through the portal system results in portal hypertension. While this is happening in the splanchnic circulation, the systemic arterial circulation experiences a reduction in the effective arterial blood volume. This in turn stimulates the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system to tell the kidneys to retain sodium and water. Eventually, portal hypertension leads to leakage of fluid into the abdominal cavity, which we call ascites. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. You were asked to see a middle-aged man with a history of alcohol abuse presenting with abdominal distension and referred to you for ascites. The first step in this approach to ascites is to use your history and physical exam to determine whether the patient in front of you actually has ascites. When taking the history, the two most helpful questions to ask are symptoms of increasing abdominal girth and ankle swelling. If a patient endorses an increase in their abdominal girth, it significantly increases the likelihood they have ascites. However, if a patient denies an increase in their abdominal girth or ankle swelling, it is highly unlikely they have ascites. If you suspect the presence of ascites, other questions to ask include the presence of abdominal pain, dyspnea, fever, and nausea and vomiting. When examining your patient with suspected ascites, a positive fluid wave is the best test to rule in the presence of ascites, so be sure to examine for this. Other things to examine for include signs of chronic liver disease, jaundice, and asterixis. When examining the abdomen, remember to look for bulging flanks, flank dullness, and shifting dullness in addition to a fluid wave. These are your physical exam maneuvers for confirming ascites. Once you are confident your patient has ascites, the question becomes, why? 
This brings us to the workup for a patient with new onset ascites. The best way to determine the cause of ascites is to analyze a sample of the peritoneal fluid. This is obtained by performing a paracentesis. The reason to perform a paracentesis can be both diagnostic and therapeutic. Analysis of the fluid can help determine how it got there in the first place and whether or not it has become affected, as is the case in spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, or SBP. Removing liters of fluid from the abdominal cavity can also make your patient feel much better. A diagnostic paracentesis is indicated in all patients with new onset ascites and in those admitted to the hospital for decompensated cirrhosis to rule out SBP. If you have trouble finding an area of ascites on physical exam, you should use an ultrasound to help you mark it. Once you have obtained a sample of acidic fluid, it is time to send it to the lab for analysis. Be sure to specify what tests you want performed on the fluid. The standard tests of acidic fluid are albumin, total protein, cell count and differential, and gram state and culture. Finally, sending the fluid off for cytology can also be helpful in ruling out malignancy. Once the results are back, it's time for a little math. To help determine the cause of ascites, we use the serum ascites to albumin gradient, or the SAG. In order to get an accurate SAG, it is important to get a serum albumin level at the same time you are sending off your acidic fluid for analysis. To calculate your SAG, you take the serum albumin level and subtract the acidic fluid albumin. If the result is greater than 11 grams per liter, we call this high SAG ascites, and it suggests the presence of portal hypertension. In combination with a total protein less than 25 grams per liter, this confirms liver cirrhosis. If the total protein is greater than 25 grams per liter, it may be cardiac cirrhosis or Bud Chiari. With a SAG less than 11 grams per liter, the differential includes tuberculosis, pancreatitis, nephrotic syndrome, or malignancy. The next important step is to see if the cites is infected by checking the cell count and differential. If the neutrophil count is greater than 250 cells per microliter, a diagnosis of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis can be made. This finding will be important for your management, which we will discuss shortly. It is important to know that a diagnosis of SBP is not contingent on the isolation of an organism on grand stain or culture of the acidic fluid. Aside from the acidic fluid analysis, the other important tests to order include liver chemistries, tests of liver synthetic function, and an abdominal Doppler ultrasound. Now that you've completed your workup, let's move on to management. For this podcast, we will focus our management on a patient with high sagacites and cirrhosis. The initial management has multiple components and involves dietary sodium restriction, diuretics, and treatment of SBP if present. Given that the underlying cause of ascites formation is sodium and water retention, the goal of therapy is to induce a negative sodium balance. This is accomplished by limiting sodium intake to less than 2 grams per day and increasing renal sodium excretion with the use of diuretics. The diuretic of choice is spironolactone at a starting dose of 50 to 100 milligrams per day. This is because the driving force of sodium retention is hyperaldosteronism, and spironolactone blocks the effects of aldosterone at the distal and collecting renal tubules. To improve natriuresis, furosemide can be added starting at 20 to 40 milligrams per day. The dose of diuretics can be increased every three days, maintaining a ratio of 5 to 2 of spironolactone to furosemide up to a maximum dose of 400 milligrams of spironolactone and 160 milligrams of furosemide. 
Lastly, but importantly, in patients with an acidic fluid cell count greater than 250 neutrophils per microliter, empiric antibiotics should be promptly initiated for SVP. Ceftriaxone is the antibiotic of choice, with treatment for a minimum of five days. In patients who have a documented allergy to cephalosporins or penicillins, a fluoroquinolone such as ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin can also be used for treatment of SBP. In healthcare-associated SBP or in areas with high rates of bacterial resistance, treatment should instead be with piperacillin tazobactam or a carbapenem. Antibiotic therapy can be narrowed if an organism is identified. Now, it's time for a medicine minute. In patients with SVP, the in-hospital mortality is approximately 20%, despite resolution of the underlying infection. This is due to the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines that may precipitate deterioration of circulatory function, leading to renal failure and even multi-organ failure. A 1999 randomized controlled trial demonstrated that when compared with cefotaxime alone, treatment with cefotaxime plus albumin was associated with a significantly reduced incidence of both renal impairment and mortality. This was further supported by a 2013 meta-analysis. Current guidelines recommend albumin at a dose of 1.5 grams per kilogram on day 1 and 1 gram per kilogram on day 3. When treating a patient with SBP, do not forget to treat with albumin. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled, Where Salt Goes, Water Follows. Just a reminder that you can find an accompanying infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. This episode was written by Dr. Derek Little, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Keith Soy, gastroenterology, and Dr. Jason Chung, general internal medicine. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai, music production by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai, developed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali, and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt-Vegas. You can find more about this podcast at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This is The Internet Work, and we hope to see you again soon.